on in the New Testament as we continue our studies through this great book in chapter 3 this evening, verses 11 through 18. The short section, verses 11 through 18, in the book of 1 John, chapter 3, where we read, This is the message you heard from the beginning, we should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. May God indeed bless to us both in the reading and in the exposition of his word this passage from the scriptures. Now in these studies in the book of 1 John on these Lord's Day evenings, we need the constant reminder together of the overall purpose of the book of 1 John. It is a very simple and clear purpose as we have very frequently seen together on these Sunday evenings, the purpose to identify the true Christian and distinguish him from the false counterfeit. And in a book that is rich in scriptural teaching with its themes of light and love and the word of God and many other rich themes, the great purpose of John is always and everywhere in this book to identify true Christianity and distinguish it from the false. And so we have been seeing that John devises a series of tests to expose the counterfeit and to encourage the true. As in chapters 1 and 2, where the test, you remember, was walking in the light and confessing our sins and keeping the commandments of God and loving the brethren. And we came to the point, you remember, as we turned to chapter 3 several Sunday evenings ago, where the tests continue, where John's rich teaching at the beginning of chapter 3 was that God is our heavenly Father, and we have the immense and incredible privileges of being called the children of God. But the test quickly follows that if we are the children of God, then we must evidence together the family likeness of God, living together 
in a life that loves righteousness and hates sin. And two Sunday evenings ago, before my vacation, when I was with you, you will recall that in those verses 4 through 10, we explored together the theme of righteousness and sin. But if I am a child of God, I bear the family likeness of loving righteousness and avoiding and eschewing sin whenever it crosses my path. And we have come this evening in verses 11 through 18 to the other test that John gives us in this third chapter. Now, it's something that he's already touched upon. You will remember in chapters 1 and 2, the test now, not of righteousness and sin, but the test of love and hate. And you notice, if you look at verse 10, the end of the previous section, it leads naturally into our subject this evening. For there we read, anyone who does not, does not do what is right is not a child of God. Neither is anyone who does not love his brother. So it's clear that John is going to lead on to this further test of love and hate as he contrasts them together in verses 11 through 18. Now, before we look at it this evening, I want you to notice once more the sharp antithesis there is in biblical truth. And by that I mean that there is no gray area, beloved. We've seen this again and again. There is truth on the one hand and error on the other. There is righteousness on the one hand. And there is sin on the other. There is light on the one hand. There is darkness on the other. So now, in this section, there is love on the one hand and there is hate on the other. There is no middle ground, no gray area in biblical teaching concerning the difference between the true Christian and the counterfeit Christian. There is no room for a third mark of the Christian. Either if we are in Christ, we love, or if we are not in Christ, we are governed by an attitude of hate. Now, this is so clear, and it's so clear also, as we will see this evening, in the examples that John takes. The doctrine in John's epistle, you may have noticed, is never bare and naked doctrine, but it's clothed with flesh and blood. And on the one hand, representing hate in these verses is the life of Cain, taken from the Old Testament, and incidentally, the only Old Testament example that John gives in the whole of this lovely book of First John. But it's enfleshed, as it were, in the life of Cain, the principle of hatred. And contrarywise, the great principle of biblical love, the love of God, is enfleshed before us in these verses in the life of the Lord Jesus, who is set before us as a model and an example which we are to follow and which we are to emulate. You have the great doctrine, clothed, as it were, with living flesh and blood, that we might grasp it and take it to ourselves the more readily and understand it the more fully. And in his great commentary on this epistle, Robert Law reminds us that the prototypes, he says, of hate 
and of love are symbolized in these two great characters, Cain and the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is a significant and searching test. I plead with you this evening, do not regard it as something so simple and self-evident that we already know these lessons. Because what John is saying to us is something truly profound and challenging, as Paul the Apostle also says in many of his writings. The evidence of our being in Christ, beloved, is the evidence of how we relate to one another. And if that relationship has failed and is failing, it should raise in our minds the very serious question, am I in Christ at all? Just as Paul speaks of sanctification in terms of relationships with other people, the husband to his wife, the child to his parents, the church member to the fellow members in the body of Christ. And the great question before us this evening is, is my life characterized by Cain's self-centered love? which makes me a child of the devil? Or is my life characterized by Christ's self-sacrificial love, which makes me a child of God? Which am I this evening? It's not a theoretical question at all. It's immensely practical, as we will see. Now look with me then, if you will, At the two divisions, really, of these verses that stand out so clearly, there is Cain's self-centered love, first of all, that is spoken of in verses 11 through 15. Now, you notice immediately that John is conscious in these verses that what he is sharing is not something new at all. It's something, he says, that you have heard from the beginning in verse 11. And it's clearly a reference to the teaching of Christ in the 13th chapter of John's Gospel and in chapter 15, where Christ makes it clear that the new commandment he is giving to his people, that they should love one another and that they should be distinguished in the world by that quality of love for one another that makes the world stand back and say, what manner of people is this? And so he is reinforcing something that should be self-evident, my dear friends, to every Christian, that we should, in verse 12, love one another and do not, therefore, be like Cain, who murdered his brother. Now let's think of this example together, the self-centered love that is evidenced in Cain, who is the prototype of the children of the devil. We have this illustration that I have spoken to you about where John takes a living person and clothes the doctrine with living flesh and blood. Now, what is then the attitude that we are to avoid? The attitude of hate, of self-centered love, as evidenced in that Old Testament character Cain. Well, look at that example of Cain with me in Genesis 4, you may want to turn to the passage. But in Genesis 4, you notice that what we are taught there is that there were two men 
who were very different and distinct, the one from the other in the opening verses of Genesis 4. There was Cain on the one hand and there was Abel on the other. And the point of that great historical incident was that these children of Adam and Eve were very different in their understanding of God and their approach to him. Now it's clear that God had revealed to them the way to approach God by sacrifice. But they were not to come into the presence of God in those early days of the human race on any terms that they might decide, but on God's terms, which clearly he had revealed to them. But because of their sin, the only way into his presence was by way of blood sacrifice. Now, you read there in Genesis 4, as you're very very familiar, I'm sure, with the passage, that Abel came the right way, God's way, but Cain did not. And God remonstrated with Cain, you remember, who was angry, whose pride was hurt, who did not humble himself in the presence of God when he realized that he was wrong, that Abel's offering had been accepted and Cain's rejected. And the Lord said to him, why are you angry? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted like your brother? You have done wrong and your sin of pride, God said, is like a wild beast seeking to spring on you and get the better of you. But instead of responding to that overture of grace from the Lord, what did Cain do? He murdered his brother instead. Now you notice, turning back to the passage before us, John's diagnosis of the cause of Cain's self-love. It was certainly envy and jealousy of his brother, but fundamentally, do you notice there in verse 12 and following, that it was hatred of righteousness. His own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And that was the essence of that self-love that characterized Cain. It withered at another man's joy, filled with envy and jealousy and hatred of righteousness. This was the characteristic of the man of the world, the unbeliever, the ungodly, who refused to bow humbly and come to God in the appointed way. Now, you see, this distinction is very, very important for us today. Why do I say this? Because the word love today has become so utterly ambiguous, hasn't it, in our society? There was a popular song a number of years ago, Everybody Loves Somebody Sometime. Now, you see, if that is true and that is biblical love, then we're all, In the love of God, we're all manifesting the characteristic of being children of God. But clearly that cannot be so. And Hollywood's definition of love is not the biblical definition, nor is the playboy version of love the biblical definition, nor is the Marxist definition of love in our world today the biblical definition. Material equality with everyone else is the Marxist definition of love. But you see, what the world is characterized by 
is love, but it's self-love. It's the love that is evidenced in Cain as the prototype of the man of the world, the ungodly, that self-love that seeks its own and is opposed to righteousness, as, as John says, and hates every manifestation of it and seeks only its own good. Now you can tell a tree by the fruit that it bears. And the fruit, as we know, in the life of the child of God is a love to God and a love to man that is in complete contrast, as we will see, to this self-love of Cain that does not seek its own advancement and its own uh, improvement and its own betterment at the expense of others. But it's impossible for the natural man to have that kind of supernatural love. Why? Because his nature is bound by Satan. He puts self first, which is natural to him. He may appear outwardly in certain actions to love God, to give to good causes or even to the Christian church to respect the Christian gospel to a certain extent, and so on. But it's all on the surface. There are no deep roots. And we need then to grasp this great point that John is giving to us. But here is the characteristic of the world's self-love. Now, do you notice, my dear friends, that immediately John's thought, and follow with me if you will, in verse 13, moves from Cain on to the world. And he teaches us the second thing about this self-love, that we should not, not be surprised, but the world hates us. Now, it's a very natural progression of thought for this reason, that what is the world around us, the world of unregenerate, non-Christian men, but the progeny of Cain. And we read in Scripture that this whole kingdom of the world, the organized kingdom of evil around us, is under its prince and ruler, Satan. And it's represented biblically under that great prototype of Cain. So you see, it's no wonder then if Cain hated righteousness and did not find the love of God dwelling in his heart, that all his progeny will hate righteousness as well, and they will resist every manifestation of the love of God that they see in the children of God, because the world, beloved, expresses, as it must do, the spirit of Cain, its prototype. Now, how often have you noticed this? If you go the way of the world, and you seek wealth and prestige and pleasure and the acclaim of your fellow men, the world will love you, won't it? It will approve of you. It will give you accolades. But if you live as Christ's people, the world feels guilty, as evidently Cain did through the example of his godly brother's obedience and service to God, approaching him in his way. And the world begins to say to us, don't put restrictions on us. 
whether it's in the area of abortion, whether it's in the area of the Lord's day and its observance, whether it's in the area of the law of God and his commandments. We don't want these things. And you might think the the world would be glad to hear the glorious news of the gospel of grace and pleased to know that its sins may be forgiven by the sacrifice of Christ and impressed to see Christians living in vanity fair with lives of righteous obedience to God and that it would want to know the secret of the Christian's love for one another. But this is not so, as you well know, because the nature of unsaved mankind is to want to please themselves the very nature of Cain's original sin. They do not want God to rule their lives. They do not want to put the best interest of others before their own self-centered interests. And they view with suspicion and they argue against those who proclaim the glorious gospel of grace to them. And they refuse to surrender their self-centered lives in obedience to the sovereign God whom they should love and serve. Do you see what John is saying, beloved? In the world today, there is Cain. And there are the children of God still as represented by faithful and believing Abel. And Cain and his progeny hate us and hate the gospel we we profess. And they are ready to do it and to do us an injury whenever they can. Now in summary, do you understand how so clearly John is bringing this to our attention. And it says to us this evening, am I there in my relationships with others, even in the church, where Cain stood? This is not an academic question that John is raising. It's a powerful, pertinent test of whether I am where I say that I am. Because I need to ask myself, is the attitude that I am manifesting to a fellow Christian in this assembly, even here this evening, characteristic of the world as represented by Cain or characteristic of Christ as represented in his self-sacrificial love for his people? Now, that's very important, you see. And it's even possible that I may be a genuine Christian and yet living in an attitude of hatred to my brother. And I must beware. As I say, this is a very vital issue. Also in the church, this can happen. And you see, we shouldn't be surprised when we find in the church, instead of unity and a marvelous love that the New Testament speaks of, which enfolds all believers in a marvelous fellowship that the world knows nothing of, instead of that, we can find on occasion the attitude of Cain represented. Now, why is this? Let me explore it for a moment. It usually is because in my own heart, in some area where I should be obedient to God, I have come to hate righteousness as expressed 
in someone else's life. And in my experience, the faithful Christian doesn't need to say a word. It's your very purity, your zeal, your love for the Lord. It might be your tithing that you practice with biblical faithfulness that has become a source of difficulty to a fellow member and there's hatred arises in that person's heart. It might be about your Sabbath keeping. It convicts them of the opposite, their Sabbath breaking. It might be the righteousness of your life as you have it in Christ convicts them of some area of unrighteousness in their lives. They see in themselves the opposite of what they see in you in the fellowship. And you see, if I'm in that position, what I need to do, beloved, is not to say that person must be wrong and I am right. But I need to ask myself, what am I reacting to in this person that I've become so upset and my heart filled with hatred toward that person? Why do I resent that person? his zeal or generosity or obedience to God? Is it because it shames my apathy? Is it because it shows up some area of wickedness in my life? And it leads to the other question. Ought I not to be learning from their example to become more generous, more obedient, more biblically faithful, more enthusiastic, more loving, toward others. You see, it's in the church. But the problem is, John is addressing the problem in the church. He's taking the example from an ungodly man in the world, but he's saying, beloved, test your lives in the church to see and be sure that this attitude of Canaan of the ungodly world is not your attitude as well. And don't be surprised if you or others in the fellowship are showing not love, but hate, but is equivalent, you notice, as the section ends, to murder. And it's so serious, beloved. You've got to deal with it. You've got to get rid of it. Cain and his self-centered love. Now let me begin to draw to a conclusion as we look at the second great example that John gives to us and you notice it's there in verses 16 through 18 and it concerns Christ's self-sacrificial love. This is how we know what love is, says John, and it's surely one of the most beautiful texts in the whole of the New Testament that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our life for the brethren. And then you notice he gives a very beautiful and practical example of how we can do it. Now, what a change of emphasis, isn't it? It's almost with a sigh of relief we leave the darkness of these verses that we've been studying together and we come into the light of another and so different and contrasting example to that of Cain, the example of Christ. Not self-centered, but self-sacrificial. And it's as though winter has suddenly become spring and darkness has suddenly become light, isn't it? The example of Christ. The one took life. The other 
gave life. And he did it when his life was righteous and theirs was evil. And he did it in great love in the face of evil and a response to it. And it's very interesting, you know. I wish I had time this evening to show you from the New Testament scriptures that almost everywhere in the New Testament, whenever you read of the love of Christ, it's immediately related to his self-sacrificial death. Do you notice that? The next time you're reading your Bible at home and you come across a passage that speaks of the love of Christ, you'll notice that it will be immediately related in the context to his self-sacrificial giving of himself upon the cross. Now, there's two things that I want you to grasp before we leave the passage this evening. We have a model here, and we have an example. Look at verse 16. There is a model, and what a contrast to Cain. What we are supposed to be doing is modeled in the Lord Jesus Christ. What did he do? He laid down his life for us. The very heart of the gospel. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son into the world. He gave him for us. And we read in Philippians 2 of that great self-humbling of the Lord Jesus in one of the most exalted passages in all of Scripture how he, the king of glory, humbled himself when all was his in the everlasting regions of heaven. And he became man, taking our nature. And he became a servant, still lower. And he became subject to death, lower still. Even the death of the cross, says the apostle Paul, the lowest rung on the ladder of obedience to God was reached in order that he might then be highly exalted and given a name that is above every name, that at that name every knee should bow, and so forth. He left the throne. He became a man. He took our sin. He suffered the penalty that was due to us upon the cross. Was ever self-sacrificial love like this? And what John is doing is not leaving us, you see, with an abstract Example, love one another. He is saying, love one another in this same category of love that Jesus modeled out for us. A living flesh and blood example of where we should be this evening so that even a child here tonight can understand it. How should I love in the fellowship of the church as Jesus did. A love that involves the deepest kind of sacrifice. Now you notice, as I said, whereas the one took life, the other gave it. And John identifies the love that we should have as God's love seen in Christ's death upon the cross of Calvary. And beloved, here is the test that if I am a believer, I should be growing in my understanding of what this really means. Is it possible for me to have received such love as this that brooked at nothing in my salvation and not to give it to others? And that's exactly where John takes us on to the second thought not of the model in verse 16, but of the example. Look 
in verses 17 and 18. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Oh, it's so practical and so searching, isn't it? As you stand before this text and you look at your love to your husband or your wife in the Lord, your love to another member of this same fellowship, your love to those engaged in Christian work. You see, the whole point of this example is to take it again from the abstract to the concrete. Not many of us will have the opportunity in our lives to actually lay down our lives physically for someone else, to give our life for a fellow Christian, to be a martyr. Not many of us will be privileged to do this. And John realizes that, so he brings it down to everyday, ordinary life. If you look and you see your brother in real need, are you moved to do something about it? And it's significant that the word in Greek is not the casual look at someone else who has a passing need. It's a prolonged, determined look at another brother who is suffering a prolonged need of one kind or another in the fellowship. And John's question is so practical What are you doing about it? Have you responded in every way? You say you love God. Serve him. You say you love your brother. Extend yourself in a ministry of mercy. You know of someone in real need in your fellowship? Then go out in sacrificial service to the point, if necessary, of laying down your very life for him as Christ himself did. And that is the test of whether I am where I say I am in the Christian life. It's more than words. It's more than tongue. It comes and issues, says John, in deeds. We have an obligation to give of our substance in a costly way, the end of which is, beloved, death if necessary, up to and including the giving of my very life. Now that's what characterizes Christians in contrast to the self-love of Cain and the world. Now let me apply it, and then I'm through. Have you considered, my dear friend, what this would mean in the Christian church if everybody were living by this principle. And the principle is my life for your life. Have you considered what this would mean if everybody in our church were living by that principle? How could there be resentment? How could there be hatred? How could there be even the whisper of any division? When I take the position that it is not my way that is important because love does not seek its own but goes out in self-sacrificial love to others? Or have you considered in the marriage where there are strains and the danger even of breaking up and we are all so well aware of the high incidence of divorce today, how many divorces could be avoided 
If the spouse, instead of saying, what am I getting out of this relationship, and because I'm not getting what I think I'm entitled to, the relationship will end. Instead of that, the principle were, my life for your life. Even though I'm not getting what I believe I'm entitled to, my heart is filled with the love of Christ that is willing to sacrifice self and in a pity and compassion is going to love and love and love again the spouse, however unworthy that spouse may be. Is it to the point of death? This is the standard of Jesus for his followers. Or have you thought again, and here is the third example, in terms of Christian service, where we are so blessed today with abundance of material things, that so often the Christian work and worker lives on a shoestring, and the budget for the spread of the gospel is limited because of the selfishness of God's people. And if the principle of my life for your life obtains in my Christian experience, I will lavish my goods as necessary for the work of the gospel. I will encourage the servant of Christ by the largesse of my stewardship because I'm living not by the self-sacrificial love of a cane, the self-centered love of a cane, but the self-sacrificial love of the Christ. Now, as I finish, you see, what this teaches us, beloved, is that there are no ideal circumstances for living the Christian life. I cannot come to you this evening and say, the gospel that I preach is an easy gospel. What Christ says is, this is my standard for you, my life for your life. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, a ministry to those in every kind of need that does not brook even the cost of martyrdom. There is no ideal circumstance to live the Christian life. The ideal is the love of Christ that seeks not its own. But let me finish on this note. But there is also consolation, isn't there? You and I are in God's great family. The world may be a hard place for us to live in, and indeed it is, but what immeasurable compensation there is to know that I am in the family of God, and in this church, love enfolds me, whatever the cost, and it flows out from the Christ of Calvary. And I am drawn in to such a loving, caring fellowship that I am in, as one man said, the great club of the saints. Isn't that beautiful? The world thinks it has the best in all its clubs and organizations, but I am in the best club of all, the club of the saints, where the love of Christ flows out in a river of brotherliness and of living, not for self, but for one another. May God grant us this 
but is beyond mere words and beyond the tongue, but as John says, is in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful this evening for John's great teaching and we recognize that we need it very much, each one of us. Whatever height we may have attained, there are still further heights that we must climb. Forgive us for our many faults and sins. And, oh, take this great teaching of the apostle and write it in letters of living fire in the hearts of each one of us to the glory of God. Amen.